From the K-Rob Collection, this is Audio Antiques, featuring programs from the golden age of American radio. I'm Ken Robinson. During radio's classic era, race and ethnicity were rarely talked about or featured on the air, but there were a few exceptions. One was The Eternal Light, an NBC radio show that began in 1944 and ran for 45 years. It was produced in conjunction with the Jewish Theological Seminary and featured dramas and commentary from the perspective of Judaism. The Eternal Light won numerous awards and sometimes featured major Hollywood stars. NBC later created a television version, which was just as successful. You will hear three episodes, The Battle of the Warsaw Ghetto from 1943, racial justice and social activist Helen Keller's visit to Israel in 1952, and the story of the blessed Taylor in 1960. The eternal light shines right after this break. Speak unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil out of beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually in the tabernacle of the congregation, and it shall be a statute forever in your generations. The Eternal Light. The National Broadcasting Company and its affiliated independent stations present The Eternal Light, a program which comes to you under the auspices of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. Our program today, part of The Eternal Light's 15th anniversary series, is The Battle of the Warsaw Ghetto, written by Morton Wishingrad. It is presented in observance of the Passover holidays and the 16th anniversary of The Battle of the Warsaw Ghetto. It is a prayer for the dead. Hear him with reverence, for it is no ordinary prayer, and they are not the ordinary dead. They are the dead of the Warsaw Ghetto, the scapegoats of the centuries. Once the priest robed himself in linen and stood on Sinai in a convocation of Israel, and they brought unto him a live goat chosen by Lot. And he laid his hands on the goat's head and confessed over it the iniquities of the people. And he released the goat, and its name was Azazel, scapegoat, and it fled into the wilderness. But for them in the ghetto of Warsaw, there was no release. There was only the abyss. In the ghetto, 35,000 stood their ground against an army of the Third Reich. 
and 25,000 fell. They sleep in their common graves, but they have vindicated their birthright. Therefore, let him sing and hear him with reverence. For they have made an offering by fire and an atonement unto the Lord. And they have earned their sleep. My name was Isaac Davidson. And I lived in the Polish city of Lublin with my wife, Devorah, and Samuel, our son. When Poland fell, they herded us into a cattle car and transported us to the ghetto of Warsaw. It was a place in purgatory. And around that purgatory, they had built a brick wall and another wall of barbed wire. And beyond the wire stood a third wall of soldiers armed with bayonets. All right, now move on. Next. Next, next, lively. Your name? Isaac Davidson. Who are they? Deborah Davidson, Samuel Davidson, my wife, my son. Three blue cards. Get along. Next, next, next. Move on. Pick up your feet. There's no funeral. Three blue cards stamped with the letter J. Bread cards. Each card, a pound of bread a week, as precious as life. Devorah held the cards in her hand, and we went to the tenement in the Tabada district, to the place where we were to live. We went up the stairs of the tenement, and Samuel and I waited in the hall while Devorah spoke to the woman who lived there. They said you would know where we're supposed to stay. Come in. This is where you stay, in this room. But you live here. In this corner. The other corner is yours. But I thought... You don't know how lucky you are. This room has a window. Perhaps we shouldn't trouble you. Maybe some other place. <laughs> You'll find out. Before they walled the ghetto, 50,000 people lived in these slums. Yes, Do but... you know how many are here now? 500,000. A half million. I know a man who sleeps in a vault in the cemetery. Don't be a fool. Come in. It's still better than the cemetery. That was our room. And because Devorah lived in it, it was also our home. There was no soap, but she cleaned it. There were no needles, but she made a cloth for the table. There was no lamp in it, yet she filled it with light. And then when she found a box, our son Samuel scrabbled up some earth and a few pathetic blades of grass. Devorah put the box on the sill of the window. There. Now our house has a garden. Yes, Devorah. Our house has a garden. You say it as though it is not true. Look, Isaac, look at the sun. There is no land where the sun doesn't shine. Now let it shine here on something green in the ghetto. Green grass in the Warsaw Ghetto. A few pathetic blades of green in the scrabbled earth. But a sign of living spirit. And a proof that where the spirit lives, there can be no degradation. There in this place of death, shut off, walled in, foredoomed, there were things of the spirit done by men and women like Devorah. In the Ghetto of Warsaw, there was beauty and comradeship and learning 
Uh, seven marks of an uncultured man and seven marks of a wise man. Do you know what they are, Samuel? The wise man does not speak before him who is greater in wisdom and does not break in on the speech of his fellow. He is not hasty to answer. He questions according to the subject matter and answers to the point. He speaks upon the first things first and upon the last last. Regarding that which he has not understood, he says, I do not understand it, and he acknowledges the truth. And the mark of an uncultured man? The reverse of all these things. Very good, Samuel. You're a good boy. Wiseman's theory of germinal continuity. Teacher, I can't finish the recitation when they talk. Please, please, all of you. This is a classroom in the ghetto. It is different from other classrooms. We must be an example. Thank you. Go on, Esther. The theory of germinal continuity. The germ contains living material which has come down in unbroken continuity ever since the origin of life and which is destined to persist in some form as long as life itself. While Wiseman's name is chiefly associated with this theory... <laughs> well, I thought this was a class in sculpture. Apparently, I'm wrong. Uh-huh. Well, what's this supposed to be? I don't know, uh... Maybe I'm supposed to be one of those uh, surrealists. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> well, don't give up. I'll make a sculptor out of you yet. Uh, it's all right with me. If you're willing, I'm willing. But my father made me a plumber. Now, if I had my tools and a piece of brass pipe, ah, then I'd show you some real sculpture. Say, ah. 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 Wider. A, a little more. There, there, that will do, my boy. Why didn't you bring him earlier? It's my fault. I didn't know there was a clinic. His tonsils are badly infected. They'll have to come out. I don't have any money to pay you. Oh, there's nothing to pay here. Money can't buy what no one will sell to us. No? No. We need drugs, instruments, anesthesia. Then you operate without anesthesia. Please, doctor. Will it hurt? Yes. It will hurt. In the ghetto, everything hurts. Perhaps tomorrow it will be different. The ghetto waited for tomorrow. It tried to do so with dignity and self-respect. Sometimes it was hard, but the ghetto tried. In the cellars of the tenements, the children went to classes. And wherever there was a patch of dirt, the older boys studied agriculture. Carpenters taught their trade to clerks with thin chests. The watchmaker and the leather workers opened trade schools. The artists taught their art. And all of this was free. Whoever wanted to learn was welcome. It was a somber, grim, melancholy place. Heavy with the foreboding of death. But we encouraged each other to work and to study and to laugh. Yes, to laugh also, we organized four theaters. But our greatest pride, our finest symbol, was our orchestra. The ghetto symphony. We'll try it again from the same place. Now watch me, please. Please, watch the stick. We are going to start together and finish together. All right, now. Watch the stick. Watch the stick. 
We sat and listened to the ghetto symphony feeding our hunger on the clear, sweet sound. But since the heron folk, the master race that erected the walls, since they intended that we should be hungry, they came and confiscated some of the instruments. First they took only a few, then more. Our orchestra dwindled. It became an ensemble. And then the heron folk came again and stole more instruments. The ensemble became a quartet. And then a single solo violin was left. Why did they do it? Perhaps it irritated them. Jews satisfying a hunger. We were left with hunger. Where there is hunger, the plague always follows. The plague came and 17,800 persons died of spotted typhus in Warsaw. And of these, 15,758 were Jews. Pestilence imprisoned behind the brick wall. Great achievement of medical science. I say it without irony. Yes, 15,758. And of Aura Davidson, my wife, 15,759. <laughs> Samuel, <laughs> leave her. You cannot tell her anymore. Mama! Mama! Come here, come here, Samuel. She cannot hear you. You are a big boy. You mustn't cry. Here, let me wash your face. She wouldn't like to see you with a dirty face. Stop crying now. I'll try. Will you do something for me, Samuel? I can't. I want you to go to your corner. I want you to try to go to sleep. I couldn't. I couldn't sleep, Papa. Then go to your corner and turn your face away. Mind me. Do as your father says. That's right. To the wall. You are a good boy, Samuel. You will not hurt her, Papa. No one can hurt her. I'm taking off her clothes. Her apron. Her dress. Uncle Everham's shoes. Everything. Naked came I out of my mother's womb. And naked shall I return thither. Yes, after dark I'm going to carry her into the street. And I will leave her there. Cold, naked, nameless. You know why I must do this, Samuel. They must not be able to identify her. They must not know who she is. Is it because of the bread card, Papa? Yes, yes, it's because of the bread card. If they identify her as Devorah Davidson, they will take it away. They must not be able to identify her. Please, Papa, please. Let him take it away. Not in the street. It is her last wish, Samuel. The bread card is for you. Honor her last wish. The blue card with the letter J. A pound of bread a week for her son. I won't take it. I can't. You must, Samuel. Once you took her milk, now you must take her bread. She leaves you nothing else. You must take it, Samuel. It is your inheritance.
This was our degradation. In the ghetto of Warsaw, we divided dead men's bread. Have you tasted dead men's bread? Taste is bitter. It is dry in the mouth because the saliva will not flow. This is what we ate. And this is how we lived. The 500,000 at the Warsaw Ghetto. Not 500,000 for long. On June 22, 1942, armored cars escorted a convoy of black trucks into the ghetto. They seized men and women and children and packed them into the trucks. And these were the uncoffined dead who never returned. And each day thereafter, the black trucks came. And each day when they left, there was weeping in the ghetto. I have seen the faces of the men that did these things. There were men like other men. Some were old, some were young, with eyes, with skin and flesh and nails, and the requisite number of fingers. I looked into their faces and did not believe. The trucks continued to come. And it must be said that if the thing that they did was monstrous... It was a monstrous thing done with order and with method. For they take pride in order. May 22nd, 1942. 6,289. Destination Treblinka. July 23rd. 7,815. Destination Oshbienshin. July 24th. 7,444. Destination Belgium. Done with method. Precise. Efficient, recorded, to Treblinka, Ospienchim, Belget, Sobiba, Magdeburg. A lethal gas chamber, an electric furnace, a poison pit, an execution field, a cemetery. And add also 10,000 brave, hopeless, tragic men who seize sticks and stones and knives and bare fists and charge the tanks and try to halt the trucks. Add their bodies to the list for the ten days of June, 1942. Make your total, and then add two precise, methodical, documented months, August and September, 1942. Reckon it, do it carefully. You cannot do it on your fingers, no. Let me give you the sum. Listen. 275,954 fewer bread cards in the ghetto. Swift, accurate, final. Quicker than typhus. Surer than hunger. They sent the black trucks because the hunger and the pestilence were too slow and too merciful. When we were starving, we beseeched the civilized world for food. And when the plague struck us, we appealed for simple things for soap, medicine, for tools for our physicians. But when the black trucks came, we no longer asked for rescue and for mercy. We asked for weapons. Through the Polish underground which carried our appeals, we asked England, Russia, and the United States for weapons. And there was silence. You did not answer. And then through the Polish underground, there came your answer. Resolutions of sympathy phrased with felicity. It was a greater injury than silence. I who know can say to you that the grave does not yield its tenant for such a coin, nor will such coin inspire the enemy to lie down and crimson the gutter with his blood. We waited for weapons that did not come. Five hundred thousand waited. 
300,000 waited. 100,000 waited. And finally, 35,000 who did not know where to look. But the answer came from under their feet. From the sewer under the Warsaw Ghetto. Carry it gently, Ponmeyer. Don't, don't let it fall. I'm carrying it a throat or a case of eggs. More gently than that, Ponmeyer. What could be more fragile than a case of eggs? A case of dynamite. The rifles are already distributed. Our men want to know if there'll be any machine guns. If we can get some through, there'll be machine guns. But don't count on it. You'll have to make out with rifles. It won't be much against tanks and mortars. It'll be better than bare hands. Yes, better than bare hands. Much better. The ghetto council would like to know your name. What difference does it make? They want to thank you. Tell them to thank the Polish underground. Take good care of those barrels. There are enough grenades in them to blow up every Jew in the ghetto. And there must be enough grenades in them to blow up every German in Warsaw. I'm glad you see it that way. What do you think we've been waiting for? April 19, 1943. 35,000 men, women, children stood ready. It was the day. Trenches were dug during the night. Every house, every room, every cellar, every roof was prepared. At 4 a.m., a detachment of stormtroopers and light tanks escorted the black trucks to the walls of the ghetto. They came as usual on their daily errand. We waited until the vehicles were within range. Fire! In a few hours, they came again. SS troops. Our snipers manned the ghetto wall itself. We were ready. They brought up a loudspeaker. the answer. That and the flags of the United Nations which floated over the roofs of the ghetto. More answers. 800 answers. 800 factories producing material for Germany blown up by our engineers. They brought up the regular army. The ghetto had defeated the stormtroopers. Now it was the ghetto against the German army. We retreated slowly from our positions as they sent flamethrowers, mortars, cannons, tanks, and planes against us. April 20th. April 25th, May 2nd, May 6th, May 10th, May 14th, May 18th, May 20th, May 22nd, May 25th. They planted landmines under the tenements, blew them up one by one. The tenements crumbled, but from the rubble of the shattered cellar, the snipers kept up a continuous fire. The surviving men and women and children retreated slowly from house to house, erecting barricades in the streets, paying with their lives for every tenement, every room, every step of the way. When their ammunition ran out, they used broken furniture as clubs and hurled stones. On the 20th day, the enemy shut off the water supply and planes dropped incendiary bombs. The entire ghetto was in flames. Those who were not burned alive were slaughtered by the Nazis. Isaac Davidson! Isaac! Here, here in the trench! His right arm had been blown off at the elbow. I spoke to him. Let me tie a tourniquet around your arm. No, no. 
Don't waste the bandage on me. Tell me how it's going. We're still fighting. <laughs> After 37 days, a few Jews with guns fighting a Nazi army for 37 days. The blood ran from the shattered stump and soaked the ground, but he smiled. They're really very foolish. They should have known that the ghetto would explode. They know now. How many did we kill? Some say a thousand, some say twelve hundred. The smile lingered on his lips, even as his eyes began to glaze, and he spoke an epitaph for the Warsaw Ghetto. It is not for thee to complete the work, but neither art thou free to desist from it. Tell them to mark that on my grave. Yes, tell them to mark it on our graves. It is not for thee to complete the work, but neither art thou free to desist from it. Hear him with reverence, for he sings a prayer for the dead. Twenty-five thousand dead. It is no ordinary prayer, and they are not ordinary dead. For they are the dead of the Warsaw Ghetto in the year 1943. The night they sleep in their last trench, their choirs dispersed in ashes, their holy books sodden in the seventh month rain, the rubble deep on the thresholds of their houses. They would Jews with guns understand that and hear him with reverence as he chants the prayer. For on the page of their agony they wrote a sentence that shall be an atonement, and it is this. Give me grace and give me dignity and teach me to die. And let my prison be a fortress and my wailing wall a stockade. For I have been to Egypt and I am not departed. If you would like a copy of today's anniversary script, please send your name and address with 10 cents to cover the cost of postage and handling to the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, 3080 Broadway, New York 27, New York. And now we take great pleasure in presenting Dr. Joachim Prinz, President of the American Jewish Congress and spiritual leader of Congregation B'nai Abraham in Newark, New Jersey, Dr. Prinz. Again, we were exposed to the great experience of witnessing the uprising in the ghetto of Warsaw. What makes this event one of the great examples of human dignity is the motivation behind the revolt. The planners of the rebellion knew from the very beginning that all was lost. It was sheer lunacy to use fists and rifles against tanks and steel armor. Therefore, we must try to delve into the mystery that moved human beings to such an unreasonable yet magnificent undertaking. These human beings were Jews. They were part of a long tradition of many thousands of years that looked at chains with disdain. The days during which they expressed their contempt for slavery and their love for freedom are the days of Passover. From the first Passover to those of our own days, in which we assemble around festively set tables to speak of freedom, Liberty is conceived as an indivisible concept. 
to live in freedom and indeed to die in freedom is made part of the concept of human dignity. Every human being, according to this Jewish concept of Passover, is entitled to undiminished life and a freedom. In the description of the Warsaw Rebellion, it must not be forgotten that it has its beginning on the Seder night of a Passover, during which none of the beautiful delicacies or the charming ornaments which adorn our Seder table existed. They did not have to talk about the bread of affliction. They had eaten it every day. When they talked about what stirred them to the very depth of their Jewish and human existences was a yearning to be free. It was so uncontrollable, so deeply embedded in the tradition of thousands of years that it simply could not bear living caged up like animals. In an interpretation of the Hebrew phrase, which is used when the writing of the Ten Commandments is described, it is said, do not read engraved upon the tablets. Read freedom is in the tablets of the law. The Hebrew words cherut, which means freedom, and charut, which means engraved, are here used to express an ever-living Jewish concept. Freedom is a voluntary moral submission to law. To the people in the ghetto of Warsaw, the goose-stepping German soldiers symbolized order without law, discipline without morality. And therefore, they became the symbol of slavery. It is against this symbol that the uprising in the ghetto took place. Thank you, Dr. Prince. Our drama today, part of the Eternal Light's 15th anniversary series was The Battle of the Warsaw Ghetto, written by Morton Wishengrad. It was presented in observance of the Passover holidays and the 16th anniversary of The Battle of the Warsaw Ghetto. Cantor Robert H. Siegel sang the liturgical music. Featured in our cast were Santos Ortega, Bert Collin, Peter Lazer, Roger DeCoven, Mitzi Gould, Joy Anthony, Beatrice Pons, Alan Bergman, Iva Francis, and Maurice Tarplin. This is Lionel Rico speaking. Our program was directed by Parker Gibbs. This weekly program is presented under the auspices of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. This is the NBC Radio Network. spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil olive, beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually in the tabernacle of the congregation. And it shall be a statute forever in your generation.
eternal light. The National Broadcasting Company and its affiliated independent stations make free time available to present The Eternal Light, a program which comes to you today from our Chicago studios under the auspices of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. Our drama today, When Helen Keller Came to Kafar Uriel, was written by Virginia Mazur. This is the story of what men can see when their eyes are closed. It was spring when we knew that Helen Keller would come to Israel, the time of the singing bird and the fig tree. At Kafar Uriel, the village for the blind, we waited for her visit. All was excitement, all was preparation. Every day, old Uncle Ezra put another coat of polish on his shoes. Every day, little Leah gathered tight little hands full of flowers for the visitor. And every day, a girl named Esther practiced a song to sing. Her eyes had never seen the green of new leaves, nor the swelling buds. But she sang another man's vision of spring. All through that spring, we at Kafar Uriel waited for Helen Keller to come. For around her, each of us had woven his private legend. Each of us but Daniel. Daniel had no legends about anything. Look, Daniel. See Leah's flowers? She picked them for Miss Keller. Little goose. They'll be dead before she comes. It's days and days. Don't mind him, Leah. You can pick more. We're all preparing something, Daniel. What have you for Miss Keller? Nothing. I've no desire to meet her. I shall take myself away from all the hubbub. Poor Daniel. You may do as you wish, Daniel, but we thought you might like to show Miss Keller the woodcraft shop. You've done such a good job there yourself. No, thanks. I have no desire to meet the lady. It's up to you. It can be very lonely in the dark, Daniel, I know. But it doesn't have to be. Who is this Daniel? What manner of man is he? At Kafar Uriel, none of us really knew him. But I will tell you the little I know. Daniel prided himself upon being a realist. He never believed in anything but what he could see. At 12, I can imagine him confounding his elders. There isn't any God. Oh, how do you know? I can't see him. Shh, Daniel. You mustn't say things like that. God will punish you. No, he won't. Listen, there isn't any God. See, nothing happened. That proves I'm right. The boy became a man. We worry about you, your mother and I. We'd like to see you married before we die. Daniel, have you never been in love? There's no such thing. The poets invented it so they'd have something to write about. One day I may marry, but not for love. I'll marry because it's the practical thing to do. 
Daniel believed only what he could see with his eyes. But don't judge him too harshly. Within the limits of his belief, he lived his life diligently, bravely. Before he came to Israel, Daniel had lived through the siege of the Warsaw Ghetto. He had looked into the face of an enemy machine gun. The machine gun he believed in. He could see it. And act. He had thrown a hand grenade. The machine gunner had fallen. Daniel had seen him fall. He's dead and I'm alive. Daniel looked down at his two feet planted in the mud to prove he was alive. Above him rode the universe, a billion trillion other worlds, some visible, some unseen. But neither infinity nor the ways of God held any interest for Daniel. I threw the hand grenade and now I'm alive. By his own strength and by his wits, Daniel had survived two concentration camps. He believed in the camps. A number was tattooed on his arm. He could see it. But when men died around him, or he saw them taken away to die, they ceased to exist for him. It's too bad, but everybody dies sometime. I'll die too one day, and that will be the end. But why think about it now? When he came to Israel, he shut the past like a book. I have two good arms and two good legs. I'm still a young man. I'll build a life here nothing can touch. He joined an agricultural settlement, and there he did the work of two men. Daniel! Daniel, please stop! What are you saying, Esther? It's noon. The sun's too hot to work. I wish you'd let me alone. I want to finish this field. Oh, I knew you wouldn't stop. I brought you some water anyway. Here. <sighs> that was good. You didn't thank me. Run along, Esther, like a good girl, and let me finish this field. Sometimes after work in the fields was done, the others of the settlement made music, danced. But Daniel worked at building a house for himself. Other men might live in tents for the time being, but Daniel must have a house. A house of stone. A house so strong that nothing could destroy it. One by one, he picked the stones up himself, and one by one, he laid them on top of each other. The others sang, but the walls of Daniel's house rose. you again, Esther. We're having a party at Joseph's. There's a moon tonight. I know. It's a good night to work. I can see what I'm doing. Oh. Daniel, when your house is done, what will you do with it? Live in it, of course. It's a big house. I might marry someday. It would be the practical thing to do. Now I haven't time to bother with it. Daniel... Tell me something. What do you see when you look at me? Why, you, of course. I have a ribbon in my hair tonight. It came in a box from America. So you have. It's red. It's pretty. I looked in the mirror. I thought I looked nice. <laughs> Esther, what in the world are you crying about? Goodbye, Daniel. 
I'll go back to the party now. Goodbye. Daniel's house was almost finished. He had plowed his field, planted it, and gathered in the harvest. And now it was spring again, and Daniel was plowing another field. Suddenly one day, the tractor stopped. With the dumb defiance of inanimate things, it sat stock still in the middle of a row. Blasted thing. Daniel got down from his seat. He kicked it. Nothing happened. I know there's plenty of gasoline. But anyway... He lighted a match and bent over the tank. Daniel did not see Esther's face bent over him. He was never to see anything of the visible world again. Later, they told him how Esther had died, trying to pull him out of the flames. I'm very sorry, but she shouldn't have done it. I could have saved myself. When he was able to leave the hospital, Daniel came to the colony for the blind at Kafar Uriel. Kafar Uriel, it means God is our light. And it is the place where all the people of Israel without sight have come to discover the world that lies beyond the visible. It isn't a sad place, Kafar Uriel. Here families live together if they like. Old Uncle Ezra sits in the sun, napping. A smile flits across his face. He doesn't talk about it, but one day soon, Uncle Ezra is sure his eyes will open again. He's waiting for the heavenly vision. No, Kfar Uriel isn't a sad place. Little Leah flits about the lawn, picking her flowers, and in the workshops, hands move back and forth, touch with love the finished chairs, benches, brooms. Please, uh, everybody, stop for just a moment. I want you to meet Daniel. He's come to live at Kafar Uriel with us. Hello, Daniel. In this shop, we cane chairs, Daniel. Do you think you might like to learn to do that? Doesn't matter. Anything. Anything so long as it's work. Show me how to begin. Begin what? Being blind. I wish I could show you, Daniel. Daniel. My name is Esther. Our benches in the shop are so close I thought I'd introduce myself. Why did you jump? Why did you jump when I said my name was Esther? Did I? Do you know another Esther? I said, how do you know I jumped? You mean I, I can't see you? Yes, you're blind. I felt you jump. When sight goes, other things become stronger. What is it, Daniel? What's what? What makes you so unhappy? <laughs> why are you laughing? I can't help it. One blind person saying to another, why are you unhappy? There's an old proverb. In the dark, a man brushed against a wall and said, this is the end of the world. It isn't, Daniel. I'd better get back to my chair. It isn't the end of the world. 
I want to talk to you, Reuben. Sit down, Esther. What's bothering you? It's Daniel. Oh? It's new for him, isn't it? Blindness. It happened last year, the accident. Sometimes I think I'm lucky. When you're born blind, you make up your world from the beginning. Maybe Daniel will learn to. I don't know, Esther. It's my feeling Daniel's always been blind. Even before he lost his sight, he was blind. Don't say that. You love him? Of course. I don't want you hurt. Loving can't hurt you. It's only not loving. Antithesis. It's one of life's persistent patterns. We should have known from the beginning that Esther would love Daniel. She lived in a kind of sunlight where she saw with perfect clarity what life really meant. All his days, Daniel had groped like a mole in the dark. Come to the top of the hill with me, Daniel. We're still an hour before supper. No, thanks. I'll sit here and smoke. You're afraid. You're afraid you might stumble because you don't know the way. Take my arm, I'll show you. I don't want to be led around. I dream about a man with a cane and a tin cup, somebody leading him. It's not such a bad dream. It's awful. Suppose a man were alone. I don't mind being alone. Not if I can be independent. That's why I came here, to learn a trade. To learn to make my own way. Not to be dependent. That's impossible. I thought that's what they preached here. Self-help, independent. Oh, in, in, in one sense, yes. But in the sense I mean, we're all dependent on each other. Imagine a man alone on a desert island all his life. He might feed himself and clothe himself, build a shelter and survive, but who is he? I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, we only know who we are by knowing other people. Through loving, hating, creating, and destroying. This is way over my head. I never think about things like that. What do you think about? Nothing. Now... It's... It's like you were in a desert, isn't it? Where everything is lifeless, where, where there's no sun or moon. How did you know? I've had that dream, too. Come with me, Daniel. There's a lovely view on top of the hill. lovely view. A view is something you see. Up here I feel like I'm on top of the world. The wind blows around you and, and the sky's so close. Everything's possible up here. Would you rather I didn't talk? Either way. Look. Look, look, here's a primrose. First one this year. How do you know it's a primrose? Because it is. What is a primrose to you, Daniel? It's a flower, of course. A yellow flower with a sort of sticky center. A primrose by a river's brim. A yellow primrose was to him, and it was nothing more. That was in a school book when I was a child. I had to learn it. I never cared for poetry. Look, what else is a primrose but a primrose? Whatever God or man is. That's another poem. 
So funny, Daniel. You know what a primrose looks like. You can remember. I never saw a primrose. But I know what it is. Daniel climbed to the top of a hill, holding onto Esther's arm. He held a primrose in his hand, and he climbed down again. But without his knowing, the darkness had been pricked. That night, as he tried to sleep, he saw a primrose, saw it for the first time. And seeing the primrose, he saw other things he'd never seen before. Faces flashed before him, like faces one sees suddenly, lit by lightning. A man at Buchenwald being dragged away between two guards. No, don't take him. Take me. The face of the other Esther, a red ribbon in her hair. Goodbye, Daniel. I'll go back to the party. Goodbye. No, come back. Come back. Come back. A sudden flash of light can be more terrifying than a darkness one is used to. When morning came with its accustomed sounds, Daniel retreated from his visions. It was too big a burden that he had been blind all his life. Will you come to the top of the hill again this evening, Daniel? No, Esther. I've work to do. In the workshop now, he did the work of two men. He worked as if the chair he was caning were a demon he was fighting. You... You make me afraid, Daniel. What are you doing? Caning a chair. No... Will you come to the top of the hill with me tonight? Why do you keep asking and asking me? No, I won't come. Not ever. Never. It was that same spring when word came that Helen Keller would come to Israel. At Kafar Uriel, we waited for her visit, and excitement ran like sap in the tree. Every day, Uncle Ezra put another coat of polish on his shoes. Every day, little Leah gathered tight little hands full of flowers to give the visitor. Look at Leah's flowers, Daniel. Primroses for Miss Keller. They'll be dead before she gets here. It'll be days and days yet. Don't mind him, Leah. You can pick more new flowers every day. Daniel? Leah has flowers. I have a song. All of us have something. What have you for Miss Keller? Nothing. I shall take myself away. I don't know what all the fuss is about. None of you know her. We do know her. You mean you've read about her? No, no, no. We know her. Each of us in a different way. For Uncle Ezra, I imagine she's the woman she is today, with, with her life behind her, mostly. Like his is. Her work finished. Something new about to begin. For little Leah, I think she's still a child. The blind child that used to cry in the dark like Leah does. And then a teacher would come. What does she mean to you that makes you want to hide, Daniel? She means nothing. Nothing at all. Poor Daniel. Esther, stop it. Stop what? That song. You've been humming it all morning. I can't work. Oh, I didn't know I was humming. It's on my mind, I guess. 
She'll be here tomorrow, and it's, it's what I'm going to sing. Daniel, what does the song remind you of that you don't want to remember? Oh, leave me alone. No, Daniel, what? What do you want to forget? Nothing. There was this party that night at Settlement. They kept singing that song. A girl, her name was Esther, kept trying to get me to come. She had a red ribbon in her hair. Now, are you satisfied? No. She loved you, didn't she? Didn't she? She was killed trying to save my life. Yes, she loved me. God help her. Now, will you leave me in peace? It was spring, the time of the singing bird and the fig, when Helen Keller came to Kfar Urio. Everything was as we had imagined it in our mind's eye. Little Leah gave her flowers. Uncle Ezra's boots shone. We gathered round her, touched her garments, pressed her hand. And the legend we had woven around this woman was made flesh. Only suddenly, I knew something was missing. Come in. Daniel, it's Reuben. If you've come to get me, it's no use. You can do what you please. It's Esther I'm worried about. Esther? What's wrong? I don't know. She's not over at the hall. I can't understand it. She talked and talked about Miss Keller's coming. She was going to sing. I know, and now she's gone. I've looked in all the buildings all over the grounds. Have you any idea where she might be? Maybe. If you want me to, I'll try to find her. first time in his life, Daniel acted upon instinct. He knew that if he climbed to the top of the hill, Esther would be there. <laughs> Esther? <laughs> Esther, I've come to get you. They're waiting for you. <laughs> You're crying. Don't, Esther. I can't stand to hear you cry. What is it, Esther? I couldn't face it. All my life, she's meant for me that that you could push back the darkness. And now she's here. For the first time in my life, I feel blind. Why? Why do you feel blind? It doesn't matter anymore, I'll say it. I love you, Daniel. And you don't love me. You don't love anyone. I'm all alone. <laughs> You're not alone, Esther. I'm here. You've got a ribbon in your hair. Can you see me, Daniel? You're beautiful. Esther, they're waiting for you. They're waiting for you to sing. Take my arm. I know the way now. <laughs> It was spring when Helen Keller came to Kafar Urio. The time of the singing bird and the cuckoo. Uncle Ezra's boots glistened. Little Leah gave her flowers. And a girl named Esther, who had never looked upon the green of new leaves nor the swelling buds, sang another man's vision of spring. <laughs> Ich 
And as Esther sang, a man named Daniel, blind all his life, saw for the first time. If you would like a copy of today's script, please send your name and address with 10 cents to cover the cost of postage and handling to the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, 3080 Broadway, New York 27, New York. And now we take great pleasure in presenting Mr. Louis Weiner, immediate past president of the Chicago Council of United Synagogues of America and Chicago manufacturer. Mr. Weiner. The moving story which you have just heard was woven around persons who are blind. We usually conceive of blindness in its dark physical meaning as the absence of sight. As this script made clear, however, there are many levels and degrees of blindness. The deeper and less obvious level of this affliction is the blindness of the spirit which Daniel exemplified. The irony of this story lies in the fact that although Daniel was not born blind, he lived a blind life. And at the time that he became aware of the meaning of the world and his relationship to other human beings, he was physically handicapped. There are indeed many levels of blindness that we are constantly surrounded by them. For are not prejudice, arrogance, and anger the common blindnesses of man causing him to falter and stumble? We are all aware how frequently out of suffering is born a new and deeper insight into an appreciation of the true dimension of life. For the knowledge that comes of suffering is a knowledge directed inward. Daniel, as the blind man, understood himself for the first time. For this understanding was not contingent upon the physical sense of sight. Although Daniel was physically blind, he achieved vision, exemplifying the struggle for spiritual vision. The living symbol of the triumph over physical adversity is Helen, Helen Keller. We associate the name of Helen Keller with the faith and will of the spirit of man, causing him to rise above the level of mere existence. Her greatness lies in her fulfillment as a human being. The Bible teaches us, in thy light we see light, for even with our afflictions and handicaps, with our blindness both physical and spiritual, it is incumbent upon man created in the divine image not to allow himself to remain in darkness, but to search for the light. Thank you, Mr. Weiner. Our eternal light drama today, When Helen Keller Came to Kafar Uriel, was written by Virginia Mazur. Cantor Putterman sang the liturgical introduction. Featured in the cast were Maurice Copeland as narrator and Sam Siegel as Daniel. The music was written by Morris Mamorsky and conducted by Joseph Galicchio. The production was under the direction of Howard T. Keegan. Free time to present the eternal light is made available by the National Broadcasting Company and its affiliated independent stations. This weekly program is presented under the auspices of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America and came to you today from Chicago. This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company.
Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil olive beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually in the tabernacle of the congregation, and it shall be a statute forever in your generations. The Eternal Light. The National Broadcasting Company and its affiliated independent stations present The Eternal Light, a program which comes to you under the auspices of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. Our program today, The Blessed Taylor, was written by Daniel Silverstein. My name is Benjamin Miller. For 30 years, I've been a rabbi in Philadelphia. And many times, members of my congregation have come to see me with problems and asked for my help and advice. In all my years as a rabbi, though, the most unusual situation with which I had to deal concerned a tailor named Morris Rubens, his, Dora, his wife, Dora, and their son, Jerry. It all began when I first came to the city of brotherly love. The Rubens had come from Poland when Jerry was a baby. But when my story begins, Jerry was 15 and already in his second year at high school. Mind you, this was 30 years ago. But as I recall, it all started one day when Jerry came home from school. Hi, Pop. Uh, welcome home, my long-lost son. Your poor mother thought maybe you were dead. I'm sorry, Pop, but I had a hard test to finish up. What's this, Pop? I'm your father, remember that. I'm sorry, father. Huh. What kind of a test? Geometry. Geometry, eh? You know, Jerry, because of your geometry, your mother's made herself sick. For your geometry, I've lost I don't know how much business, and who knows, for your geometry, we may not have bread on the table tonight. Honest, I couldn't help it. You have to have advanced math to get through college, you know. Advanced math, college. Who fills your head with such nonsense? All the arithmetic you'll need is to figure out the profits when you're in the tailor shop with me. Morris, Rubens, and son. Just like my father before me and his father before him. But, Pop... What's this Pop again? A little respect when you talk to your father. Okay, father. But I want to get a scholarship and go through college someday and, and be a lawyer. Oh, so it's attorney Rubens. Maybe that's what you're learning in high school? To be ashamed to work with your hands? To be ashamed that your father works with his hands? Let me tell you, Jerry. I'm a skilled craftsman. And you're going to watch me and learn from me. And maybe one day you'll be proud to be a fine tailor like Morris Rubens. Yeah, but right now, use your advanced math and see how many outstanding bills you can collect so that we can pay the presser. Is there anything else you want from me, Pop? Respect. That's all I want. And don't call me Pop. And don't draw diagrams all over the counters with my chalk, huh? Morris. Morris, I'm just about finished with Mrs. Hirsch's dress. It's all right? Yeah, machines. It's all right, I suppose, for a dress for Mrs. Hirsch. But sewing by machine on a man's suit, never. Only by hand. Mm. By hand only? We wouldn't eat anymore. Maybe if you would let the boy sew. The boy is a boy, not a tailor. When he watches and respects his father's work for a long enough time... Then I'll let him sew and make him into a fine tailor. Pop, the lining in this coat is ripped. Should I sew it for you? <laughs> we have enough trouble without you sewing. 
You're not a tailor just by saying so. You know, back in the old country, boys worked in their father's shops till they were grown men before they even cut a buttonhole. I know, Pop, but you have so much work. Don't pity me, lawyer Rubens. You just be on time for a change and don't worry your mother. Pretty soon you'll be graduated from high school and then I'll have my full-time assistant. Ah, now there's a customer. Go see what he wants while I do some work. Hello, may I help you? I'm Rabbi Miller, the new rabbi at the temple. I only just arrived. Is your father in? Well, he's in the back. Shall I call him? Uh, please, it's rather urgent. I need his help. My baggage has been misplaced and won't arrive for another week. The only clothes I have are those I'm wearing. Well, who sent you to Pop? I mean, to my father. Well, I was told he was the best tailor in Philadelphia, so I came here because I must have a new black suit for the Sabbath. The Sabbath? Yes. What? Today is Wednesday. Gosh, Rabbi Miller, that's an awful short notice. He usually takes at least a week for a suit. I'd really appreciate it if he could do it. I'll try to make it worth his while. Well, I don't know if he can. He's been working very hard lately, and he's very busy. But I'll ask. Wait here. Pop! Pop, the new rabbi is out front. And he wants a suit and made him in a hurry. Now, don't bother me. My whole schedule's thrown off with your geometry. He says he must have a good black suit. He'll try to make it worth your while. Worth my while to drop everything for a suit? Tell him my while is too expensive. Morris, it's the new rabbi. Do you want him to go to Maya Friedman and buy ready-made? When does he need the suit? Day after tomorrow. Day after tomorrow. Tell him it couldn't be done in twice the time. Not by hand. Tell him I'm not a machine and we're not running a factory. Morris, it's the rabbi. There are many ways of saying no. Now you go out and say it to him nicely. It can't hurt to talk to I him. have no time to talk two days. The whole thing's a joke. <laughs> Maya Friedman probably sent him here. No, Pop, the congregation sent him. They said you were the best tailor in all Philadelphia. In all Philadelphia, mm -hmm. eh? The best, huh? <laughs> all right, he's a new rabbi. It can't hurt to talk it over. If he lets me have a week, I'll take the job. He's out front. Should I do anything with these vests? Yes. Study the work I've already done. Then you can rip out my bastings. Ah, Mr. Rubens. I've heard a great deal about you and your work. Did your son tell you why I'm here? He told me. Now, you tell me again, eh? Well, there's really not much to tell. My baggage has been delayed in transit and may not arrive for another week or two. All I have is the suit I'm wearing. And it's not becoming for the Sabbath. No, no. I could get a ready-made suit, altered on time, but I'd really prefer a hand-tailored one. Of course. I know it's a great deal to ask. What do you say? Can I pick it up Friday before sundown? You know, Rabbi Miller, I'm not a young man, and a suit by Morris Rubens is every inch hand-tailored. Well, maybe with such a rush, the inner seams could be run up on the machine. That would be cheating, and such ethics wouldn't be becoming to a business that's straight out of the Bible. I, uh... Don't seem to recall. It's right there in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, that Adam discovered that he was naked and he was ashamed and hid from God. Right there, we tailors came into being. So I guess maybe I have a responsibility to try to keep you from being ashamed before your congregation and see that you are properly clothed before God. <laughs> I had never thought of it that way before. And thanks, Mr. Rubin. Don't thank me yet. I haven't even started. When I finish, you can thank me by showing off the suit to your congregation. And when you tell them it's hand-tailored, they'll be able to trust their rabbi. Jerry! Yeah, Pop? Come. Take down Rabbi Miller's measurements. 
Waist, 34. Waist, 34. Shoulders, 42. Shoulders, 42. Chest, 38. Chest, 38. How's it going, Pop? The suit, I mean. Uh, it's very slow, Jerry, and I'm very tired. Is there anything I can do? Well, just maybe take the pins out of the lapels. And then bring me another glass of tea with plenty of sugar. They say the sugar gives energy, eh? Are you sure, Pop? I mean, you've already... No, 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 don't argue. Just tell Mom to fix the tea and then you go to bed. You got school tomorrow. I'll get the tea, Pop. Mom? Oh, how's your father? He's very tired. But he's sure determined to finish this one on time. Well, how is it coming? It's taking on shape. He wants more tea with lots of sugar. More? He's already had four glasses. He says the sugar gives him energy. Or diabetes. Oh, I'm, I'm worried, Jerry. Your father's not a young man, and he's not used to working under such pressure. Listen, Ma, yeah. you go to bed. I'll get the tea. Oh, all right, Jerry. You're a good boy. Oh, don't forget to put five lumps of sugar on the saucer. And, Jerry... Keep your father company. Maybe he won't notice how tired he is if you make conversation a little bit. Pop? Pop your tea. Don't, don't, don't yell, Jerry. Don't yell. Oh, you <coughs> fell asleep. Look, Pop, why don't you forget the whole thing? Huh? In the morning, Rabbi Miller can go over to Meyer Friedman's and, and pick up a suit ready-made. <coughs> then you won't have to kill yourself. I can only keep going. <sighs> Jerry, look at it. Did you ever see such a beautiful piece of cloth? Such a stylish cut. This isn't just a suit, Jerry. It's a very special one, a, a Sabbath suit. You know, Jerry, when I told Rabbi Miller to pick it up the day after tomorrow before sundown, I wasn't only making a promise to him. I felt as if I was somehow making one to God, too. Huh? Well, if that's the way things are, Pop, here's your tea. And maybe you'd better take it with all five lumps of sugar. It's 8 o'clock. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. Of course. You were very tired last night. Yeah, but what, what about the rabbi's suit and my reputation? Huh? Morris, you needed your sleep. You didn't look good. Yeah, where, 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 where's Jerry? Why didn't he wake me up, huh? Jerry's out front. He came to me at 7 o'clock and said you were sleeping. <sighs> big talker, big bragger, Rubens the tailor, setting himself up as God's clothing representative. Me, Morris Rubens, who never yet had anything ready for a customer when he called for it, promising a rabbi his Sabbath suit in 48 hours. You meant only to help, Morris. What am I supposed to tell our new rabbi? That, that, that I was tired and thought I'd take a little snooze? What's Rabbi Miller going to do now? Did anyone think of that? Where are Maya Friedman's ready-made? With not even enough time for alterations? 
And believe me, on those ready-mades, you could alter for a week and never have a fit. Oh, come, come, Morris. Look, look, I'll call Jerry. For once, we'll all help. Jerry will stay home from school and make buttonholes, and I'll sew inner seams on the machine. Uh, Half a custom-made is still better than a whole ready-made. This is no time for jokes. I've failed my profession, my rabbi, and my guard. Oh. And, and... Dora! The suit! What's the matter? Is it missing? It's right where I left it. You screamed, so I thought something had happened. You thought right. Look. Hmm? Look at the suit. The jacket is practically finished. Oh. And it's hand-sewn from top to bottom as good as I could do myself. Morris, who, who, who do you think sewed it? Well, I don't know. There's only one other tailor who can sew like Morris Rubens, and that's Maya Friedman. Before he took in ready-made. And Maya Friedman, anyway, isn't coming over in the middle of the night to help out his competitor. All right, then. Who did it? Fairies? What do you mean, fairies? It must be a miracle. Yes. God's chosen me and given me a miracle. Morris, I knew it. All that tea and no sleep. Your mind is affected. Listen, Dora. Last night, I prayed to God to give me a little help. I, I told him I needed just a little help for the new rabbi, you know, and, and he listened. Look at how nice the sewing is. Oh, look. And all the while I was sleeping. Jerry, 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 come here. I, I want to ask you something. Tell me, Pop. No. Did you, uh... Did you see anything last night? See anything? Hmm. Like what? Nobody came into this room. Nobody bothered my thread. Not that I noticed. I was the only one here. Yeah. I, I, I gotta sit down. <sighs> Jerry, you must always trust in God. In one way or another, he'll always hear your prayers. You know, as pitiful as you may think your father is because he's a tailor, he's still pretty important with God. Don't forget that. What's happened? What's happened? A miracle's happened. He's talking about the jacket being sewn. He says that it's a miracle from God. A miracle? Quick, quick, Dora, go call. Uh, uh, call who? Call who? Uh, the rabbi, of course. He must come right over and pray with me. But, Pop... Now, you, you go take care of the store. Now, why do you want the rabbi? He's a busy man. Well, God must know we appreciate his kindness. Jerry, stop standing around. Go out front and open the door. Well, what shall I tell the rabbi? I, 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 I tell him the holiest man in his congregation is, is Rubens the tailor. Yes. Tell him to come in and see the miracle God works for good, righteous men. Say, God is good, and Rubens the tailor wishes to show his deep appreciation by having the rabbi pray with him. Uh, I'll tell him, but you'd better finish up the buttonholes on the miracle before the rabbi comes. Jerry, never mind the store. You go to Maya Friedman's. And say what, Pop? And say that the new rabbi came for a suit for the Sabbath, and that God has been helping me to finish the commitment. Tell him I should like him to come and witness the miracle. <laughs> Just look at the stitching. Must have been quite a tailor. God, take it from an expert. Your tailors sew like professionals. Almost as good as I do. Almost as good. <laughs> thank you, God. Oh, and, and thank your tailors, too. Dora, Dora, 
Wasn't the rabbi? I told you, Morris. When I called on the rabbi this morning, he told me he couldn't get here before supper time. All right, then where, where is he? I, I, I don't want God to think we forgot. <laughs> Why? You've been praying all day, haven't you? Certainly, but who am I? You've been chosen by God, you say. That makes you somebody. Chosen, maybe. Chosen a tailor. I saw because that's what I'm meant to do. But he's a rabbi and he's meant to pray. Anyway, Rabbi Miller's the only one who'll know positively that what happened was a miracle. Oh, speaking of miracles, how much of the suit is still to be done? I'll be finished with it by tomorrow, God willing, in time for Sabbath. Uh, Dora, go look and see if any more's been done on it. (laughs) I've been afraid to look. Uh, No, no, it's just like before. But what do you want? You've had the needles all day. (laughs) That's true. Even God's tailors have to have needles. <laughs> oh. Is anyone home? It's Rabbi Miller. Oh, I'll go and fix supper. Good, good, and then send him back here. Yeah, sure, sure. Oh, hello, Rabbi Miller. Uh, Morris is waiting for you in the back. Fine. I'll have supper ready in a little while. Hello, Mr. Rubens. Hello, Rabbi. I didn't expect to be invited for a fitting so soon. Sit down, sit down. Certainly been a nice day. Nice day isn't the word for it. A a blessed day. I didn't realize you work so late every day. I don't usually, but today is special. Is tomorrow some sort of a holiday? Not yet, but it will be. uh, Rabbi Miller. Yes? Rabbi Miller, look at the suit that's on the table. Uh, I see it. It's very nicely sewn. Very nice. (laughs) Well... Well, what? I, I don't understand what you want. What I want is to know if God sold it since nobody else did. Huh? God? Hmm. Maybe Mrs. Rubens did it. She only sews by machine. That, that's done by hand. All right, who sewed it? Somebody did. That we can be sure of. God! But why should God sew your suits for you? I prayed to him. I asked him for help, and then I fell asleep. And when I woke up, there was the coat practically finished. Look, Morris, why didn't God complete the job if he was the one who sewed the suit? I don't need it till tomorrow. Do you think he intentionally left himself two nights' work? Rabbi Miller, I had my wife call you so you could come over and pray with me. The suit is for you. And I thought you'd want to thank God for choosing us for his miracles. I'm a religious man and a rabbi, so of course I'll pray with you. But I won't let you believe in a miracle unless we can prove it's really true. What's that to prove? Last night, the suit was just started. This morning, the jacket is practically finished. Nobody was here. Nobody else could have done it. It must have been God. Are you serious? Of course I am. All right, then. Tonight at 2 o'clock, I'll come back here and wake you up. Is there any place where we can watch without being seen? Yes. Yes, from up there on the landing. Uh Yeah, but... uh... Do you think you can see God? Perhaps not. At any rate, we'll watch and see exactly what happens. Uh, You just do whatever you did last night. All right, all right, I will. I'll pray, and uh, so... Then I'll go to sleep. Good. And then, my good rabbi, then you and I will watch tailors we can't see sew a suit. Fine. (laughs) And you'll find out that Rubens the tailor is a blessed man in God's eyes. Wonderful. And then we'll pray and give thanks and, and show our appreciation. Uh, and, hmm? 
Won't you come and sit down? Please, please, join us, Rabbi. Even the most blessed men must eat once in a while. Find out who is sewing the suit. Rabbi Miller. Oh, oh. Is, is it time? That's my other slipper. Here. Oh, thank you. Uh, what happened earlier tonight? What happened? Uh, oh, well, I, uh, I, I worked on the vest. And then I, then I prayed a little bit. And uh, as you can see, I went to sleep. What about the pants? Uh, what about them? They're not sewn yet. And you believe God will sew them tonight? He did the coat last night. All right. We'll, we'll know soon enough. Uh. Is everybody else sleeping? Certainly. And are you ready to accept whatever you see? I'm ready. But, but, but you know, Rabbi, maybe God won't sow while we're watching. Maybe it's not right to watch. Huh? Mr. Rubens, we can't put it off any longer. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's time we found out. Come, let's go to the landing. But, but be very quiet. Take a prayer book in case it's God. Hmm? If it is God, we will probably won't see... See him, Mr. Rubens. Surely neither you nor I are so holy that God should show himself to us. If it's God, perhaps we'll just find the suit already sewn, and then we'll give thanks. Shh, 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 shh. Here we are. Creep up to the banister, and, and, and you look first. Why? You're a holy man, and you'll recognize things sooner than me. Are you afraid of what you might see? I fear God, Rabbi. And do you fear your own pride also? Well, maybe that too. I, I don't know. Please, please, you look first. I will. I will. <laughs> you wait here. <laughs> Morris, <laughs> come quietly and look. You're truly blessed. It's God. Come and see for yourself. Yeah. I'm afraid to look. Don't be afraid. <laughs> Only remember that God acts in strange ways. <laughs> come, come, see for yourself. <laughs> shh, shh. Jerry! He's disobeyed me. My son has disobeyed me. I've got to punish him. Mr. Rubens, think for a minute. No. Has he done you wrong? He only thought it was to help you. But, but, but I told him. He knew how important it was to you that the suit be finished. But he let me believe that God had chosen me, that I'd been given a great blessing. He was afraid that you'd be angry. And isn't the love and desire of a son to help his father a great blessing? <laughs> yes. But my friends, I told them God had answered my prayers. They'll laugh at me and, and, and... But you did pray to God. And isn't it possible that this was his way of answering your prayers? You asked for help. And here, as a miracle, came the help you needed. Rabbi, then have I sinned in thinking God chose me for his miracles? God forgives a little pride now and then from good men who wish to be forgiven. And I think he'll probably forgive a little bit of pride from you. <sighs> But what can I say to my son and my wife? Tell your wife what's happened. And thank your son. But maybe he doesn't want me to know. Then just thank him for being a good son. He'll understand. Morris, huh? who are you talking to? Oh, Rabbi Miller. Yeah, Dora, Dora, come here a minute. Yeah, what's happened? Dora, God didn't sew the suit last night. It was Jerry. Oh, Jerry sold it. I know. Huh? He told me yesterday morning. You knew? Hmm? You knew and you didn't tell me? 
I didn't want you to be mad at the boy. This way you were happy, you rested, and the suit was sewn, and when I told the rabbi... What? You knew, too. I knew. That's why I had to show you your mistake. Ah, I've been tricked. My wife and my rabbi and my son and, and even my competition are out to make a fool of me. All of them. Even God, too. Even God has allowed this joke and done nothing. Wait, what difference does it make what anyone thinks? <laughs> Not only have you a son who's as good a tailor as his father, but the suit that I wear to the synagogue tomorrow will be completely hand-tailored by Rubens the tailor. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You know, Rabbi, the more I think about it, no one has really made a fool of me. I was a fool to begin with. No, no. Me, Rubens the tailor, who thought he was blessed by God, has been blessed by God. Yes, Mr. Rubens, <laughs> you've been truly blessed. Thank you, Rabbi, thank you. You know, we've had even another miracle, Rabbi Miller. The suit you were supposed to pick up from Morris Rubens the tailor at 4 p.m. today... We'll be ready for you instead at 12 noon. Morris, <laughs> where are you going? What does that boy think he's doing staying up all night? I'll, I'll finish the suit. Jerry, you've got to go to bed. You've got school tomorrow, and, and you can miss a day. What do you think I want you to be, a, a, a tailor all your life? <laughs> Not my son. <laughs> no matter how well he sews. <laughs> If you would like a copy of today's script, please send your name and address with 10 cents to cover the cost of postage and handling to the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, 3080 Broadway, New York 27, New York. And now we take great pleasure in presenting Mr. Samuel J. Levy of White Plains, New York, member of the Board of Overseers of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America and a prominent civic leader. Mr. Levy. There was a child went forth every day, and the first object he looked upon that object he became, and that object became part of him for the day or a certain part of the day or for many years stretching cycles of years. Those words belong to a poem by Walt Whitman, which goes on to suggest that the child who represents all children of all time is nurtured in his growth by everyone and everything he encounters in his youth, by his friends and his enemies, by his successes and by his failures, by his teachers, his city. But most important, he is nurtured by his own parents who give to him something of themselves each day. Whitman said, they become part of him. The mild words, the quick loud word, the sense of what is real, the doubts. So the blessings which our children bestow upon us are not so miraculous as they may seem. They are rather a product of the pattern of wisdom we try to give to our children. Taylor Rubens, for example, taught his son more than how to be a good tailor. And, like Rubens, we try to teach our children how to be good human beings. We teach them not with words alone, for words can seem but empty phrases without the accompanying deed. We teach our children by living ourselves each day with the honesty, the fullness of faith, and the goodness we ask them to make their own. We guide our young to see the good and the evil in our world and to understand it. We suffer with them through sickness and fear, 
and we tremble with joy at their achievements. So we should thank God each day for the blessing of their growth and the fulfillment of being part of that growth. Thank you, Mr. Levy. Our eternal light drama today, The Blessed Taylor, was written by Daniel Silverstein. Cantor David Putterman sang the liturgical introduction. Featured in the cast were Leon Janney as Morris, Guy Rep as Rabbi Miller, Bryna Rayburn as the mother, and Dennis Bell as Jerry. This is Vic Roby. Our program was directed by George Vutsas. Portions of this program were pre-recorded. This weekly program is presented under the auspices of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. is the NBC Radio Network. Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing, the home of distinctive quality t-shirts. This is my favorite brand. I love the fit and the look. I will wear panoramic everywhere. Yeah, it doesn't get any better than this. Yep, panoramic. That's my brand. Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing, premium t-shirts at popular prices. Get quality or less at plclothing.store. Stock market traders need the right financial visualizations to be successful. And that's what FinViz Elite is all about. FinViz Elite provides real-time market data, research, screeners, ratings, and technical indicators backed by 24 years of historical statistics, all presented in an advertising-free interface at a price everyone can afford. Get details about FinViz Elite at krobcollection.com. From the K-Rob Collection, this has been Audio Antiques, featuring classic shows from the golden age of American radio. This podcast emanates from Anchor.fm and can be heard on Apple Podcasts, iHeart, Spotify, CastBox, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and others. You can contact us at audioantiques at krobcollection.com. Our theme music is by hbeats330 at gmail.com. I'm Ken Robinson, thanking our many listeners in the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, India, Germany, Ireland, Canada, Ukraine, Bhutan, Spain, Poland, the Netherlands, France, and 73 other nations around the world. Glad to have you with us.